Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. This week on our panel, we have Ben Wilson. Hello. Francois Bertrand. Hello. And Charles Maxwood from DevChat. I'm working through the rebrand, folks. It's been ingrained for 10 years from Top End Devs. And this week we have a special guest, and that is Ahmad Mustafa Anis. Hi, everyone. Uh, Ahmad, if you want to introduce yourself real quick, let us know who you are and why you're famous. My name is Ahmad Mustafa Anis, and I am undergrad student at IAUI in Pakistan, and I am working as a deep learning and computer vision intern at a startup named Portal AI. And I like to write some articles and posts on the things which I learned. Awesome. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. And uh, yeah, we ran across an article where you were talking about deploying your models. I think you used something called Fast API, which is something that I wasn't familiar with. Is this a product or is it a framework? Or uh, Basically, it is a library that was developed by a great software engineer, and it is super easy to use. And it is a very uh, handy library for creating back and REST APIs. Very cool. So do you want to tell us, first of all, what you're building and what you deployed, and then we can dive into how you use Fast API to do it? Uh, basically, I wanted to learn Fast API by deploying a machine learning model. So I created a dummy model, uh, which would just calculate the sentiments of tweets. So it was basically a sentiment analysis model that would calculate the sentiment of tweets related to elections. Mm. So I deployed it using a Fast API, and using that API, we can just send the tweet to server and we can get its sentiment back. Interesting. So sentiment analysis related to elections. Yeah. I was going to make a joke and say it always comes back angry, angry, <laughs> angry. I mean, if it's really Twitter, angry, if it's Twitter, oh, that's it's either angry or it's sarcasm. I mean, that's basically <laughs> your two flavors and, that you have. And when that, you say that's, that's fair. And then the you replies say are angry. When you say deployment, do you mean, what do you mean exactly? Is that uh, uploading the model on a server for it to run the data, uh, you know, a client side component, like uh, what is involved in that? So basically it is the model that is deployed to Heroku server and it has a basic front end, like very simple HTML front end, but it is, it has an API so you can access it using uh, its URL by any programming language, or you can send the request via curl command line tool. So when we're talking about, uh, some of our listeners out there are front-end software engineers. People on this panel are some of some pretty big experts in this space. And what we're talking yeah, about popular. is... <laughs> we're talking about a, a service like this. This is different than what a typical REST API would be backed by, right? It's not so much a database there, and there's not a data processing layer like you would have for infrastructure for serving to an app or or a website. But when we're talking about ML models, when we're speaking about an artifact of an ML model, what is that? Like when we save a model out, what are we actually saving? So basically, the process of saving model is like we actually save the model structure and its weights. Like we have trained the model, we save its weights and its structures. And basically, we just uh, upload that saved file and along with its weights, so that when in the server, we can just simply load the model and load the weights, and it can just perform the sentiment analysis on that weight. So we serialize the model by saving class arguments, and then when we're actually serving it, we have a container that is running that framework that we can create an instance object of that framework 
with the arguments applied to it. Exactly. So you're using Heroku as your container running service. That's in your, your blog post, you talk about TensorFlow 2.0. So it's got that installed. And then when you're saying, hey, I'm deploying my model, you're sending over just the config basically to say, hey, when you instantiate yourself, here's how you need to process data through yeah, it. So basically we list all the requirements inside that file which are going to be installed and alongside all the required files which are needed to make the predictions on the sentiment analysis and some of the UI files and fast API files so that they can run on the server of Heroku, on the container of Heroku. So one of the things that's pretty common in our world of data science and and production ML is pre-processing, which in your article, you cover that in both aspects of that, of both training where you have some text pre-processing that occurs. You're not just tokenizing, but you're also cleaning up the tweets. Because uh, people can put non-UTF characters in there. They can put in you know, crazy emojis. They can create all sorts of stuff. That like, like angry faces and obscene gestures? Oh, yes, most certainly. Angry. So in Ahmad's code, he's stripping that out using regex and saying, hey, just give me the, the clean text that I can mm-hmm. use to, to infer from. And then... In your your hosting layer, how do you handle maintaining parity between training and inference? So basically, we simply import that pre-processing function, uh, which we use for training inside that hosting. And whenever the new tweet data comes, we just pass that data through that function so that it gets cleaned out. Also. Awesome. And so it, there is I really like how you... Yeah, how it, between. yeah, I really like how you said that, which is something that... I don't see too terribly often when people are doing it. I, I usually see some copy pasta that's happening. Somebody says, oh, I'm going to take this function that or this actual data manipulation class and copy it and post, you know, paste it into my serving layer. And how you mentioned that, which is, hey, I'm just going to import that. I'm going to have it defined in one place so that at training, I'm using the exact same code that I'm using at inference time. And so that, that approach is definitely a, a best practice. Uh, And it keeps you from all manner of of weird things where all of a sudden you're processing data in a different way and your predictions are coming out. It looks like all of a sudden all of the Twitter comments about the election are super positive because you're stripping out the wrong data. (laughs) So Fast API is really just that part of it is really so it's it's a system so that you can define how you want to interact with the deployment. Right? Is that how you know you 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 say okay? I want to be able to do this, update the data, update the model, get predictions, and you kind of, it's, it's kind of like an interface maker kind of package. Is that what the what's the good part of it? It is like similar to Flask or other backend services which are available in Python, but it is super easy to use, and it will just create and uh, it automatically will create like a UI for you. For example, I have created the REST API. It will automatically create a UI for me in the slash docs route. So if anyone wants to test my API, he can simply go to slash docs route and he can perform that testing in that UI. So that's, that is the one part which I like about fast API very good. And other data, other than that, it is simple, super easy to code. Great. So you can have a, a nice web interface to your, uh, to your system pretty quickly, at least get something off the ground quickly. Exactly. And you do not need to code that uh, UI. It is, it, it, it automatically comes with fast API. That's great. Is it pretty customizable? Can you do something pretty complex? Can you do you know, a bunch of async queries? asynchronous queries, things like that, or is it kind of just, just something to get things up and running? I don't know how deep you've gone into it, but is this something you can use on a, on a large project, or is this something more for prototyping? I hope you can use it for a lot, lot a large project, but I'm not sure because I have not tested it in like asynchronous searches or something like that. But I, when I see the uh, post of people related to fast API and like it is quite famous these days, so I hope people are using it in big projects and it can be used. But I'm not sure about it. Yeah, fast unicorns claim to fame is its fork of G unicorn, and they label it as. UV corn. <laughs> I guess that's somewhat clever. So they refactored all the performance issues with GNO corn and made it so that it can support more concurrent operations and the, the response rate is much faster than something like Flask. But if you're doing large scale 
inference where you're like, hey, I have 10,000 requests a second coming in. You're definitely going to have to serve that container in a more distributed fashion, loaded onto Kubernetes or something, and then you get horizontal scalability. What kind of issues or problems do you have to resolve? Fast API being fast and easy, but yeah, any anything you'd like to, our listeners to, to know about that you run into? Some of the error messages are really hard to understand. Like uh, when a server is running, so the error output log is very huge. Usually in Python, when we encounter any error message, so that message is beautiful as compared to low-level languages like C++. So you can understand what exactly is wrong with the code. Uh, but when I was working with fast API, so the error log was quite huge. So it took me some time to understand like what exactly is the problem and how to deal with it. And other than that, if someone is not aware, aware of the structure of REST API, like how to set up the request, where should we use GET or where should we use POST? Uh, because I do not, uh, I did not knew it when I was coding this project. And while coding, I, I was like, what is happening with me? And then I read something about it, uh, like how to, where to use get requests and where to use post requests. So if someone is creating an API, he should read, read about it this first. It's definitely wise, wise advice on that. And any reason you picked Heroku over is that, you know, any, any other platforms? Uh, no specific reason. It was just a random pick. <laughs> I was just seeing the platform, then I was like, let's try Heroku, it's quite famous. And how do you find it? I think one of my friends suggested it. Like, I asked my friend uh, which uh, service to use for deployments, and he was like, I use Heroku. So I thought, let me try. Right. Oh, I mean, how did you find using it? Like, how was it? Is rather uh, what I meant. I think uh, Heroku is quite easy to use, and its documentation is also very good. Like, uh, if you, especially if you are using it with Git and GitHub, like it has two options one can use its own uh, service uh, which it's pro- uh, which it provides like heroku cli and you can set up like ci cd with that and other than that is you connect it with your github repository uh, which has your project and what changes you do in the master repository of your branch it automatically updates the code in heroku and it automatically uh, changes that your it can automatically changes your API. So I think if someone is using Heroku with Git and GitHub, it will be super easy for him. Like just confirm the changes, import, push it to master, and your website is already doing the same thing. What I'm most curious about is you said you're in a, your undergrad right now. Yeah. Studying Last at a university. And you're doing some internships at a company yeah. uh, during your summer break. Yeah. What prompted you to start learning all of this stuff I'm, I'm assuming that this isn't classwork because most classwork in undergrad isn't hey go build this service and okay. learn this on your own so what motivated you to effectively go through a proof of concept and what we would call an in industry a spike which is hey i'm going to take a model i'm going to figure out how do i serve this how do i create a rest api how do i create a simple front end that i can type in something ridiculous like somebody would write in twitter and give me a sentiment analysis that seems plausible why did you build that and then why did you tell the world about it so basically it all started when i got admission in my bscs and when i was in my first semester until mid inside our computer science we were not taught any programming in fact we were just taught like how to create algorithms step by step pseudo code and flow charts and stuff like that so I was like, uh, something is wrong here. So I need to learn on my own. So I went to Udemy, bought a course on Python. So I basically searched like top five programming languages in the world. And everyone was like Python and JavaScript, Python and JavaScript. So I thought I have to learn one of these. So I bought a course on Udemy. And other than that, uh, in my second semester, uh, there was a session by a motivating motivation speaker. And he taught, uh, basically he teaches freelancing in Pakistan, his name is Hisham Parwar, and he's quite famous for it. So he motivated me a lot, like on learning the skill and doing something on my own. So after that, I decided to just dive into machine learning and deep learning, and I kept on doing some courses and some small projects like that. And one day, I just thought I saw an article of my friend on Medium, and I was like, Medium is a big website. How did he publish an article there? So I go to medium and i made an account i just logged in there and i was like oh anyone can create an article here so i just started <laughs> writing my first article 
and after that i continued writing my articles and then i switched to kd nuggets and that's how and i was like i was more interested in writing articles which are related to projects like someone has to code or i code something and then i explain about that thing and i was like i have i was out of ideas at that time so i thought let's write an article related to deployment and check how it works and it will add something new to my skill and as well as the people who read the article yeah that's the thing about writing it kind of forces you to learn it exactly to a, almost an expert level you because you you can't you can't fake it when you're writing about something. You actually have to make it work. It it can't be hand wavy. Although there are some articles out there on Medium. Are, <laughs> I was going to say, are you sure about that? That are certainly that. But if you get something that you look at the code and there's a GitHub repository behind it and you can quickly execute it, and be like, yeah, this person built something, and it's it's cool. That's kind of what my impression was when I. When I saw what you did, I was like, wow, this guy's still in college and he's he's teaching himself what you would be teaching yourself as a new software engineer at a company. On your first year, people are going to give you projects like that. They're like, hey, data science team built this model, figure out how to serve it. And you have to go and do all that research. And it's interesting to see somebody document that process through a series of articles of like, I'm seeing how his thought process goes here. And that's what I found most fascinating is... And it's pretty rare to see people who are self-motivated to go and learn all that stuff on their own. And you, you seem well, to be doing a good job explaining or being uh, interesting about it because, yeah, your, your KD Nuggets profile has, you know, it's a mosaic of gold, and platinum badges. So people are, are liking how you're, you know, you're you're going through all that process. So it's, it's great to see. Yeah, I was yeah. also just going to point out that you were also smart enough to figure out that what they're teaching you in your undergraduate. I mean, I don't want to, like downplay what you learn as an undergraduate but yeah it's not always the stuff that you're going to need to learn to do your job if that makes sense that, that has to be crazy since the machine learning field kind of goes through an entire revolution every two years it feels like that how our courses even able capable of course the basics won't ever change but there, there seems to be a lot of uh yeah the, the field evolves so quickly it's got to be rough you know you got to probably being able to, to teach yourself and do and, and keep abreast of the latest developments on your own is probably a huge asset to have when you're, you're learning that. Yeah, I still feel like a lot of computer science programs whiff on a lot of the basics that have been established for 30 years. So yeah, I, I just I love, I guess, the thing is where you're looking at it and going, this is where I want to go. This is stuff I'm going to have to learn. I'm not picking it up where I'm at. And so this is what I'm going to do in order to pick it up. And so you go get professional experience as an intern, and then you go get real world experience just doing it on your own. Yeah, to keep up with all the changes, like um, every two years, machine learning is changing. And so I think it is good for one to join Reddits, uh, subreddits, like people post a lot of useful information there. For example, R dash learn machine learning or R dash deep learning. So I think those two reddits are really good for someone who wants to keep up with the changes that are occurring in the machine learning or deep learning field because people post a lot of useful stuff there. Also in the Twitter, if someone is following uh, like the top one in the industry, so he can keep up with the changes. Like what is the trend? For example, back then when I was in when I was starting my course, we were a lot of uh, time we were focused on like tune the model, tune the hyperparameters, uh, check for overfitting and change the model architecture to improve it but now what i am saying like the top in the industry like ng and other than people other people they are shifting toward more towards data-centric ai like they are focused on data more than the model they will just create a simple model and then they will improve the data again and again until the model is performing yeah Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? 
that's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call. And it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation how do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. Spoiler alert, those of us who have been doing data science for decades, that wasn't a newsflash to us. Like We've known that <laughs> for a very, very long time. I understand why people make statements like that, like, oh, you need to focus on the data. And the people that haven't been doing it for a while kind of hear that. They're like, wow, we shouldn't be focusing on algorithms. It's like, yeah, duh. Like we, any professional data scientist or you know, machine learning engineer knows that the algorithm does not make a solution. It's always the data. What you do with it, how clean it is, how biased is it? Do you have an issue that's buried in this data that when you fit a model to it, it's going to learn something you don't want it to learn? So yeah, it's it's cool that people are now thinking about that. But <laughs> there's not a lot of tools out there yet that make that simple, at least certainly not in the open source. You know, You go through and you look at how do you do how do you do a full data analysis of a feature engineering set whether it be for deep learning use cases cnns or rnns or more traditional ml the process of validating your data involves how many context switches that you'd have to do how many open source packages would you have to use going through dozens of api calls to to stats models and then using stuff in pandas and then punching over to numpy and then you have to run a bunch of correlation analyses you have to use visualizations it becomes daunting and if you don't have the experience of knowing how that can burn you you're pretty much setting yourself up for failure and your company for failure but the approach that you're taking to learn how to do some of these tasks is refreshing to me and apparently everybody else on Katie Nuggets because you're going through the process to learn it before it would burn you. And that's the the most fascinating thing to me about your journey is that you're going through and, and really understanding what it is you don't know in order to figure out how to figure it out, which sort of, when I've seen people do that, I, I can see it reprogramming the way that they think. Their brain becomes more malleable and open to learning new things. So I think it's going to do great things for you in your career. And actually, we we spoke about the ML community kind of ecosystem in the past couple of weeks. Ben, do you think is that, because Ahmad mentioned uh, Reddit and, and kind of, you know, Katie Nuggets, is that is the community a good place for people starting out? Or is that more for people who have a bit more experience? I'd say the breakdown of MLOps community, which, by the way, Ahmad, if you're not a member, check it out. Mm-hmm. You will enjoy it. Yeah, the episode it's, we did about that went live today or not today, yesterday, as we record this. Yeah, with Demetrius. Yeah. You're going to find it's probably a 70-30 breakdown of 70% people that are actively learning. The vast majority of them are already in industry. It's like they're post-grad or they've already you know, gotten a job and they're trying to figure stuff out, asking experts. And then you have 30% people who have just been doing this a really long time and like to help people out and uh, answering people's questions. So, yeah, definitely check out that as well. In addition to Reddit, you'll find people that don't like to go to open forums that join that more intimate community like that. So what what I'm curious about is, as you started setting this up and learning fast API and getting into Heroku and going through this whole process, what were some of the surprising things that you learned? Things that you ran into, maybe some problems you had? What What did you pick up as you went through this process? Some of the things like one thing I have already told about is the how to is how to set up an API, like when to use get request, when to post request, and mm-hmm. 
one of the thing is like in deployments you have some files that are related to deployment like on which port the server should run and which what should be the ip address of that so i was like just copying pasting it from stack overflow and something was not working and i was like what is wrong with this <laughs> i have exactly the same code in my file i guess the name is prop file in heroku so i got to know that your port number in heroku should always be 5000 it should not be any number and number else than 5000 and your ip should always be 0.0.0 and something like that so these were some of the things which came uh, in my way like i learned how to set up a system and in my article like i explained it in single line like how what should be the port number and what should be the ip address but uh, it took me some time to figure it out cool other than that i first tried it with their own cli uh, using Heroku CLI, I, I tried to set up uh, my project connecting the connecting my project with Heroku via Heroku CLI, but I found uh, that something is not working. So I switched to an easier option, which was uploading my code to GitHub and connecting my master branch of uh, GitHub with Heroku, and that was an easy way to do it. So a CD component of Heroku is pulling from master branch and restarting the actual server in order yeah. to update your, your serving layer. Exactly. It just checks the master branch and mm-hmm. yeah. And whenever you update the master branch, that will automatically tell Heroku to update update the code base of Heroku and update the deployment. So what advice would you have to a, a data science team that, that's getting into real-time REST API serving and their habits are like, yeah, we use GitHub and we're checking code in. And if you ask them a couple of questions, you're like, oh, what's your branch strategy? Like, how do you do feature releases? And you get crickets in response. And then somebody says, what do you mean? We just just write to GitHub. So they're pushing to master with every commit. What's going to happen it, there? It is never a wise idea to push to master directly. Like, you should always create a new branch and do some tests on it. and until unless you're not sure that it is working perfectly fine, you should not uh, merge it with the master branch. Because if someone is using like a machine and you go deep learning service, that is uh, pretty crucial. Like computer has to make make a decision, so it is not like a hardcore program, it, and it can do anything ridiculous if you are not sure that your commit is working fine. So you should always push it to like another branch and. Until the end, until the end, unless you are fully sure that it is working fine, you should not commit it to master branch. So when you're doing the CI aspect and these the unit tests that are running from the ML perspective, most data scientists are pretty familiar with how to write a unit test against a model of something like TensorFlow. And you're like, hey, I'm going to have this in the, the example that we're talking about this text string to say, is this a nasty tweet or is it a nice tweet? So you'll write that out as a unit test and say, I'm, I'm declaring a constant here for the test that is something ridiculous that you want it, the, the model to classify. And then it just instantiates that object, that TensorFlow model and says, hey, you know, predict this, you know, tell me what this is. And you get a result and you say, make sure that it it's, I think this is going to be ridiculous. Make sure the model calls this ridiculous. And there's your, your validation check and you maybe run a couple hundred of those. But when we're talking about machine learning that's deployed as a REST interface, we now have to talk about the architecture of passing that into that serving layer. So we have to mock up unit tests like that, like actually effectively do an integration test and say, start up the server that is running in a Docker container and make sure that the REST API is available and all the ports are good send those requests, the same requests to the serving model and get the return back and make sure it, does, it works. But when you have a UI component as a data scientist, you're creating a website. How do you do testing there? To be honest, I did not test it much. Like when I, when I was writing this article, I did not do much testing when on the website. So basically what I would suggest is that one should test the model fully before deploying it to a web server. Like you should be fully sure that it is ready for production, and after that, uh, when you someone is when someone has created a UI, I think uh, it should be working similar to what it w- was working without a UI. But I'm not sure because I have not uh, tested it after creating a UI. I was just teeing this up for Charles to answer. <laughs> I mean, for like 
integration test. I mean, there's, I, I've talked to a couple of our customers at Databricks that the ML teams are actually deploying web services now. Like they're having mm-hmm. code generated UIs. They're not fancy. It's not usually not customer facing, but they'll create an internal website that internal users at the company can go and type things in or upload an image. And a lot of them don't do tests of the actual UI. They test the model. They test that the REST API works, but the front end, a lot of them come back to me and say, hey, we spend a lot of our time just fixing GUI bugs because we're not JavaScript developers. We don't really know what we're doing. And some weird things happen here. So I'd like to know what advice from from experts would you give to a data science group to say, do we use dust tests or like, how do we simulate user behavior? I'm not sure what you mean by dust tests. I mean, that's, that's something that we use internally at Databricks to do that, that evaluation of like simulating interaction with a GUI. But when you're, when you're running through those tests, how do you, what's the best way to test out programmatically like a, a GUI? I hate testing GUIs. <laughs> I really hate testing GUIs. I mean, it's kind of funny, you know, just from my perspective, you know, with what I've done on the web and some of the testing that I've pulled together. Uh, a couple of things that I would throw out there are you want to make sure that you've unit tested everything first, right? So, you know, make sure your models work as expected, that APIs that your web system is going to call in to you know, access your models work as expected because honestly those are much easier to test than <laughs> the web GUI, right? From there, if you want to test the whole thing, you can use something like cypress.io or something like that and just hook it onto the front end of it and you you fire it off. But those are slow. They're always slow. I mean, no matter what you use. So just be aware of that it's not something you're going to run every time you change code. The other thing that you want to make be aware of is a lot of times what you want to do is you just want to test the integration, right? You just want to say, okay, when I call into here, it calls this API, right? Uh, against the model and does whatever it's supposed to do that way. And then if you've properly unit tested that endpoint, then you should be fairly confident that it'll work as, as expected. And then you can have your CI CD system actually run the full suite front to back and make sure that you're getting whatever you expect. But yeah, beyond that, I mean, I'm one of those people that if I have to test the UI, I'm happy path testing the thing. And it's just, this is what I care about, right? And so it's, hey, you can charge a credit card, right? Because I want to get paid. You can do the search. It loads recommendations off a recommendation engine, right? Just real basic stuff that's kind of bread and butter stuff that if it doesn't work, my customers aren't going to be happy, right? They're going to they're gonna quit paying me. Mm-hmm. I don't test the whole UI. I don't test every button. I don't test every text field. I don't test every this, that, or the other, right? The rest of the stuff that I wind up testing, I test on more of a component basis. And I and it's basically a unit test that says, hey, this behaves in the way that I expect it to whenever I use it. Yeah, I think that's great advice for ML stuff in particular. Uh, some of the, the deployed frameworks to go on, like to further carry on from your example, Ahmad, some production use cases that are like what you demoed in, in your articles, it's not just one model. There could be mm-hmm. 20, 30, 300 models that are part of that service. And that REST API for an interface has different request paths that you're interfacing with for a single deployed artifact or the, the service that's running. And when I talk to people who are like, oh, I need to test that everything works and that all the interoperability works and then the GUI functions and we need to make sure that you know the, the locations of these buttons are in the right place. It's like a human's going to do that faster than programmatically using a, a test framework. So just hire somebody to, to click through it and make sure that it works before you release the master. Yeah, yeah. On, a, on a side note, like in uh, my video game background, we used to run that kind of automated testing. It was it was a much tighter, tighter scope for UX, but we'd have something called the monkey and, you know, randomly hitting buttons, ran like at 
at a thousand frames per second for hours, leave it overnight, and it it would find a good amount of bugs. But it's it's a different problem than uh, than a website. But it was interesting how just we brute forced the crap out of it. Just have you know thousands of thousands and thousands of hours of just randomly clicking, and we did find like memory leaks and long term issues and weird word cases where you click two things at once something ha- weird happens. But yeah, not, not exactly the same use case. But it's interesting how yeah, automated UI testing can can provide some value in some cases. Wow, that's fascinating. What exploits you might might actually exist in a lot of games out there because you can click the mouse in multiple places at the same time. <laughs> I do think that some platforms for mobile apps do that that kind of thing. You upload your app and it'll, you, if you use the common you know GUI framework from you know, Android or Apple, I think it'll mm. automatically do that kind of uh, of things. And then do think security companies also, I think, do that kind of testing, running browsers and just to try to find where when something crashes and when it ends up crashing, they're like, oh, this could be an exploit, and then uh, kind of use use that technique. But again, we're yeah. drifting away from ML here a bit. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. But the thing that's interesting going into that a little bit is now you're blurring the line between like a, a pointer or clicker versus a gesture on mobile. Mm. Yeah, there, there's also that. Yeah. I mean, I really see that this is going to become a component of that air quote, full stack data scientists in the future. And there are companies that are trying to hire people that can do all of this. You never, I mean, good luck finding them or affording them. But I, when I see what you're working on, Ahmad, and these articles that you're writing, and you're thinking of ML not as, hey, I'm going to create this great model that's going to win this competition or is going to predict this one thing really well. You're more like, I'm going to create a model, sure, but I'm going to create it so that people can use it. Because really, at the end of the day, that's what data science is. It's solving a problem that can be solved and is getting solved. And I think you're on the right track to be super successful as an ML engineer in in industry because of that because that's how you're thinking of this and that's how you're you're learning it exactly when mm-hmm. I started learning machine learning I was listening to a podcast I guess its name was I don't know what exactly its name was but the person who was uh, it's the person's name was Tyler Greenelli I guess and the podcast is quite famous and he said that everyone can create like Jupyter notebooks but the main thing is like how you transfer that Jupyter notebook into server or into a deployable model. Mm-hmm. And I was also surfing Google and I found that there's a good course named as full stack data science or full stack deep learning, I guess. And it was quite famous. Like they will tell you how to convert your models from just models to a service, complete service. And I guess uh, deeplearning.ai has also released a course on Coursera named as machine learning in production. And they're quite focusing on MLOps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, yeah. Uh, was, was Tyler Ranelli talking about machine learning on his episode? He was talking about like, uh, he was basically just, uh, he was basically trying to prove the importance of uh, models in production. Like he, he was basically a web developer and he has done mm-hmm. simple his PS and he was telling his story about his transition into machine learning and deep learning. And he said that uh, because he has a simple BS and he was a web developer back then. So he said that simple models, which are in Jupyter Notebook, are not good enough to show your skills when you go out in industry. So he said that it is not good for portfolio. So one should have like proper models served up using some cloud services so that it they are good addition in your portfolio and everyone can make like Jupyter Notebooks. But... The good thing is that how you serve that model in production. Right. Yeah, it's been a recurring theme here in the past couple of weeks about DevOps. And, you know, when, once the model's in production, it's uh, yeah, everything but the model, basically, how you prepare the data before and how you handle the model after deployment. But yeah, that's uh, that important stuff. Yeah, we talked to Tyler Ranelli like four years ago about machine learning and all this stuff on JavaScript Jabber. So. That's why I'm wondering. I'm wondering if it was our episode. Just I know. I think it was his own uh, machine learning guide, machine learning guidelines podcast. I guess he has a complete series, which has more than like sixty episodes. Okay. And yeah, like he's a cool guy. Tyler's a really cool guy. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, if you can find a link to that and get it to us, that'd be great. So, what's next? What are you going to learn or do or explore next? I'm focusing more on computer vision now, and I think this mm-hmm. is 
something I love to do. And my current internship is also in computer vision. And I want to go deep inside computer vision models like detection, segmentation, and creating adversarial networks and something related to research based. Like I'm also start planning to do something related to research based, like improving some of the current algorithms in deep learning computer vision for drug detection or segmentation. Uh, this is, I guess, uh, something I want to do for next of the few years. Awesome. Very cool. Where do you think you eventually want to go career-wise? You're learning all this stuff now and interning at companies that are working on production ML application use cases. Does it seem something that you would want to continue doing that as an applied ML person in, in a company? Or do you find the framework aspect of this more fascinating? I think I love the whole process of computer vision, like what when the output of computer vision application comes, I just love it. Like there's a bonding box around the person or something like style when they, when you create a new person using deep fakes or when you segment out an object. So I think I would be an employee at a good company, which can help me grow in terms of my knowledge and in terms of my experience. And I think where I'm interning right now, I, it is a good place and I am getting to learn a lot of things in, in terms of computer vision. Nice. Cool. All right. Well, should we go ahead and move into picks? Yeah. All right. Let's do picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Francois, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure, sure. Yeah, another book recommendation. It's a bit of an old one, but I have a bit of an entrepreneurial streak, consulting and all that, having my own company in it. I found that book really interesting. It's called Will and Vision. It's about you know, how, how some companies you'd think have a monopoly because they were the first to have the idea were actually not the first movers. They just had the, the right vision, but had to work hard as heck to to get to where they are and how there was initially competition. You can think of McDonald's or Coke or the Gillette razor. You know, you think, oh, Gillette invented the razor blade. And, there, you know, that was a wish I thought of that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's really compelling stories about how yeah it's one thing to have the idea but then there's so much that goes into the implementation and how that's that's key and i i get that a bit in the video games where somebody would come up to you and say i got a great idea for a game so i'll tell you and then you get it done and we split you know 50 50 right so you're like okay i need to get the funding get a 50 person team for two years to work on this full time and then but and but you, know, you had the idea so that's half the work it's like it, it's really implementation is is a huge part of these things that you think are you know overnight successes or uh, you know just it was just a matter of having the right idea at the right time. I think Elon Musk now you know you can see he's a crazy workaholic, but he's he's doing pretty well. Anyway, it's it's so it's the the title says it all: will and vision, and you, you need both. And uh, it's just you know a really interesting read. It's kind of kind of an older book, so I'm not even sure that it's it's in print, but it's uh, it's it did okay, so you can probably find it in a bunch of places. Anyway. I thought it was it was really uh, interesting, if only for the stories. Nice, Ben. What are your picks? I've got a non-tech related pick because over the last several weeks, all I've been doing is writing code uh, all day long. So uh, I've been, rough. yeah, I found actually what my breaking point is. Uh, it's nine hours in a day. That's the, that's the <laughs> maximum amount of productive backend ML code I can write of like framework code, but. Uh, in order to unplug from that, I've been revisiting my library and hitting up books that I just hadn't, I had bought years ago and never had a chance to read. And I find that I need to fully escape reality of technical aspects whenever I'm recharging my brain. So I picked up an Ian Pierce novel called Arcadia, published a couple of years ago. It has a bit of a tech nerdy vibe to it, but it's also this fascinating story that loops in time travel and relationship between a mother and, and her daughter. And it's very fascinating. There's a, a huge twist at the end that most people would never be able to predict. I certainly couldn't predict it. And I'm not somebody that's easy, easily surprised by story twists. 
but fascinating book. And I find that fiction like that is a great way to sort of reset your brain when you're working in tech. Nice. Uh, I'm going to throw in a few picks. I'm going to put in picks for uh, both of the interviews that we did with Tyler Ranelli, the one about machine learning, which was, I guess, a little ahead of its time. And then I also did an interview with him. Again, this was like three or four years ago, but just kind of telling his dev journey up to that point. So if you're if you like Tyler and you're kind of curious about who he is and where he came from, yeah, that's a terrific way to get to know him a little bit. And he has a really, really fascinating story. But anyway, a few other things that I'm going to pick really quickly. So I tend to do the book picks. I'm going to throw out a couple of those. And then I've got a couple of uh, board game picks because I can't help myself. So uh, the book picks are one of them is called X by John Bevere. He's a Christian author. But he this book in particular, he talks about how we all essentially have a calling in life, you know, something that we are put here to do. It's an idea that I really like. And then it basically talks about how to figure out what that is and how to do it. And so I really, really like that. I think one of our past guests also mentioned The Art of Impossible. And I listened to that and that one broke my brain because it goes into all the brain science and stuff. There there were a lot of ideas around just sort of the here's what you do and here's how you do it, which is very actionable and I love. And and so that's the power of the book. But then he goes into all like, yeah, the the brain science and the physiological stuff that goes on in your brain matter. <laughs> and uh, I need to go back through and actually try and understand that stuff because, yeah, that 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 hurt trying to understand that while I was running down the trail. So but but I really enjoyed the book. It was terrific. So I'm going to pick that as well. And then board games. So a friend of mine lives over here by me. He owns a board game shop, him and his wife. And then they have a business partner that owns half the shop. And they are running this set of tables at a board game convention next week, where basically they have like six games that people can walk up and borrow from the game store. And then he has volunteers, including myself, who are going to be showing people how to play these games. And so I've been playing a whole bunch of board games over the last few weeks to learn these games and really, really, really been enjoying it. So far, one of my favorites is called The Ruins of Arnak. And it's it's interesting because you usually wind up playing like a deck building game or a tech game or kind of an exploration game. And this has elements of all of that, and none of them are super strong. But the way that they kind of come together is interesting and fun. And so... Yeah, we played it on Wednesday, me and two, him and another guy. Incidentally, our wives get together every week and play board games together, too. And yeah, the, the score was 65, 65, 63. So <laughs> and we all play different strategies. So it was it was really fun, really interesting, just fun way to explore. Hey, you know, this is how to play. But anyway, so really enjoyed that. There was another game that we really enjoyed. It was Steampunk Rally. And effectively, you play an inventor and you're building a device that races around a track. And, you know, whoever crosses the finish line, he gets the furthest wins. But you roll dice to empower your different pieces of your device. And they all interact in specific ways. It's kind of fun. And so I've really enjoyed that one as well. And then if you're looking for a game that's a little bit simpler, those two are a little bit more involved. If you're looking for a game that's a little simpler something that maybe you could play with some uh, kids, you know, ages maybe 8 to 10 or older. Or if you just want something that you can kind of just pick up, you're not into the heavy gaming games. We played one called Gods Love Dinosaurs, and it was fun. There are enough moving pieces to keep it interesting, but it wasn't so complicated that it was tricky to pick up like the other games. You know, you have to play through it once or twice to really get it. So I'll pick, I'm going to pick all three of those games. I should just do a board game pick every every week because <laughs> anyway, you have access to a whole store. Well, I don't know about that, but I get together with a group of guys, including those two guys. Uh, every month we play board games and me and this other the, the guy that owns the board game store. We're actually probably going to start a board game podcast here within the next few weeks. So anyway, it's 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 a ton of fun. So I'm going to pick those and I'm going to stop rambling beyond just telling people, hey, look, we're, we're coming out with courses and probably some communities if you're into some of the programming languages and stuff that we have 
shows around similar to what MLOps community is doing. So if you're looking at any of that stuff, go to Top End Devs and you'll find out all the information there. Topendevs.com. All right, Ahmad, what are your picks? I would suggest a book related to deep learning. Uh, the name of the book is Deep Learning for Coders with Fast, uh, Fast AI and PyTorch. It is written by Jeremy Howard. And I think uh, it is a good book for someone who is weak in maths like me. <laughs> Uh, like because uh, basically this book uh, goes through practical applications of AI using a few lines of code and the aim of this book is to teach machine learning and deep learning in a different approach which is like you build first and then you understand what you have created and I think it is a good approach because when I was learning uh, when I was starting my learning we would focus more on theory and then when we reach to practical we would have forgot that theory so I think it is better to like when you have created something, you have a prediction coming and you are, your model is predicting this is cat and this is dog. And then you dive deep inside like, wow, how is this working? How is the mathematics behind this? And I think it is a better approach uh, instead of someone is like learning linear algebra first, then going to statistics, then going to probability. And then he went to learn machine learning theory and then he comes to practical. By that, uh, by that time, he might have forgotten what he has learned in linear algebra. So I think uh, it is good to, uh, this approach is very good and I like this approach. When you create something and then you learn the mechanics behind it and it is a unique approach. They also have a course uh, by the name of uh, Fast, Fast AI, I guess. I don't remember the exact name of it, uh, but I think it is uh, my big. Awesome. If people want to connect with you online, Twitter, GitHub, LinkedIn, stuff like that, where do they find you? I am on Twitter, uh, where I usually post something related to machine learning or deep learning. With the, I'll post my name. It is basically Ahmed uh, Mustafa Nis, Ahmed Mustafa AN1. I'll post it in description. Awesome. I'll just send the link. And I'll also send my GitHub. All right. Very cool. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Thanks you for coming. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot. Time, folks. Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.